You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We are, uh, we're going to do a series on uh, tough questions. Uh, this, uh, this is the easiest week. Maybe another week is easier, but uh, today we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and human freedom, uh, and then next week we'll have to talk, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about sex. These are y'all's questions, not mine. Uh, then we're going to do discerning God's will, how can we hear the voice of God, and then finally, what happens when I die? Uh, if a lot of y'all had questions about baptism and Holy Communion, you'll be very happy to know that we will be addressing those topics uh, when we do our class on the 39 articles uh, in the fall. So, uh, so if you have questions about that kind of stuff, it, it will be addressed then. So uh, I'm going to go as fast as I can, uh, but try to be thorough and, um, and leave time uh, for some questions. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, that it is truth, and that the, gla- the, ga- <laughs> the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so, Lord, we pray that as we turn our attention toward your word, that you would speak to us. And Lord, uh, we thank you for your kingship over our lives, and that we might be brought to a place where we are able to submit uh, to who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, the Bible talks a lot about God's sovereignty, and I want to talk about that before we get uh, to um, uh, human freedom uh, or even human responsibility. What part uh, do we have to play? And along the way, I'll be dissecting it up, uh, the difference between uh, fatalism, of it really doesn't matter what you do, and and things where there is an expectation in the Bible uh, that you will actually uh, act uh, those admonitions in the Bible uh, or, uh, you know, uh, choose this day whom you will serve, uh, those points of, de- of uh, decision uh, that need to be made uh, in <clears throat> the Bible. Okay, well, sovereignty is just another uh, word for kingship. In fact, biblically speaking, you can translate it uh, the same way. When so you can re- read sovereignty, uh, read kingship which I actually find a little bit easier, and you might understand the idea of sovereignty being kingship when it comes to, um, I don't know, uh, the Queen of England. Uh, Although you could hardly call her sovereign, uh, even though she is considered the sovereign, she actually has very uh, little power. Uh, And yet, uh, there's an acknowledgement that she is the rightful queen of, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain in Northern Ireland. In the same way that there's an acknowledgement in the Bible that God is king, that God is king, and even outside of the Bible. So there is something, uh, there is a general revelation that is given to us uh, that shows God's kingship and that God is in charge. So you can read Romans 1 uh, or elsewhere, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, So you can look around and even... uh, I've met people who are non-believers. There are seats all over the place down front if you all would like to sit down. Um, uh, I've met non-believers who have just been um, in awe 
of uh, even the force of nature and have heard them go so far as to call that uh, God. And so there is evidence all around us of God's kingship, uh, but there's a specific revelation that is given to us uh, in uh, the Bible that God is our king. But what kind of king is he? What kind of king is God? To what extent is God the king in control of what happens? Is he a true king with absolute, total power and authority over all that exists, dictating the events and courses of history to and for his own purposes and ends? Or is he, as I mentioned earlier, is he a ruler like Queen Elizabeth II, simply a figurehead, a power and authority in name only, at the beck and call of all subjects, allowed only limited rights according to what the subjects allow. Or, perhaps not as powerless as Queen Elizabeth, more like a political leader, still a ruler, but one who is often taken by surprise by the actions of his subjects, and whose work, therefore, consists of making responses appropriate to decisions taken by people. Or again, following another line of thought, is God a king who, having made certain decisions about the universe, is now an impassive, uninvolved observer of what goes on. There are other possibilities, but those, I think, are sufficient to begin to spell out the issues involved concerning the nature and character of God's kingship. And I'll be talking about kingship rather than sovereignty, but you'll know uh, what, uh, what I mean. So our view uh, affects our lives. Uh, if you think uh, that, as many of our founding fathers did, that God kind of winds up the world and he's sort of impassive, he's sort of the, the lightweight ruler, he's a figurehead, but not much more than that, um, then uh, there really aren't going to be that many governors necessarily uh, on your life. Uh, certain actions and behaviors aren't going to have the implications uh, if you're living under a king who actually has real uh, authority. And so what we think of God's kingship is going to affect how we live our lives. And how we view God's sovereignty will affect every aspect of our lives. Firstly, it's going to affect the way in which we relate to God. It's going to affect whether or not, uh, part of it, very quite frankly, you know, things like your prayer life. You know, whether or not uh, uh, you uh, feel assured that God hears you uh, in, uh, in your prayers. I'm going to talk about prayer when we talk about hearing uh, God's voice, discerning God's will. Uh, or uh, on a cultural level, uh, whether or not uh, you go to church or whether or not you have your children baptized. Uh, as a little bit of a piggyback uh, on my sermon uh, this morning, since we've been in Birmingham, I've been amazed uh, by how an answer to uh, a question uh, has changed. And that is, you know, people talk about church at cocktail parties, right? It's what do you do for a living? Where do you go to church? Uh, just what we talk about in Birmingham. And Birmingham may be the last bastion of Christian culture, uh, but we're already starting to see cracks, and I've seen it in this way. Very subtle, but I think very important. And that is, uh, rather than people used to say, I go to Independent Presbyterian Church, I go to the Advent, I go to Canterbury Methodist, I go to St. Luke's. I now hear those same people saying, I grew up at St. Luke's, I grew up at Canterbury, I grew up at the Advent, I grew up 
uh, going to independent Presbyterian church. Which means what? One, they finally have the ability to be honest about the fact that they're not going to church. Right? This is pretty useless talking to y'all because here you are in church. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. Uh, but they have the freedom to say that they don't go to church. But interestingly enough, there's the cultural connection. And I think that you can actually go so far as to say that they're cultural Christians. Meaning, I'm not going to go on Sundays, but I want to be married in that church. I want my children baptized in that church. I want uh, to have my funeral in that church. Uh, but when it comes to Sunday in and Sunday out, it's just, it's not, it's not a reality. And so I think a lot of that has to do with uh, what we think of God, and especially regarding His kingship, uh, affects those aspects of our lives. And it will affect the way in which we relate to God. I mean, still in our culture, we will have people say, I really love Jesus, He's okay with me, I'm okay with Him, but I'm not going to church. And sometimes their reasons for not going to church are really good, are really, really good. And so what I try to do is to try to point them, uh, this is turning into evangelism, but that, that plays into this later, I try to point them to who God actually is, who Jesus actually is, according to what the Bible has to say about them. Uh, because people have all kinds of crazy ideas about who God and Jesus are. I mean, the number of times somebody's come into my office and says, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank, and I look at them and I say, well, I don't believe in that God either. That's crazy. Like, who would believe in a God like that? Let's talk about why you believe that in that God, and let's actually look at the real one true God that the Bible talks about. And so... Depending on what you think of God's kingship, so in that instance, they see God as a tyrannical king, and they're trying to get out of that kingdom as fast as they can, but it will affect the way in which uh, we relate to Him, which leads that it will begin to, that how we view God's sovereignty will affect our, pers- our confidence in relationship to Him. If we see God as a hard taskmaster, great, great parable for this, parable of the talents, Remember, uh, the, the landowner, the landlord, the master uh, gives uh, different amounts of talents to three individuals. Uh, one uh, really breaks the bank uh, and, and does great work with, with them. And talent is a monetary unit, by the way. So they, he really makes a lot more money. Another guy makes a pretty good return. And the third guy does what? Buries his talent in the ground. And what's his excuse when the master returns? I knew you were a hard man. Well, that's rubbish. That's, that's wholly uh, untrue. But the impression that this guy had of the master led him to bury his talent in the ground. And in the same way, if that's what we think of God and His sovereignty and His kingship, uh, that's going to affect the way that we uh, relate to Him. And even our confidence... You know, there are still a lot of people in the world that think that God's love for us is action consequence. And so if you believe God blesses me when I'm doing good and God curses me when I'm doing bad, uh, that makes God out to be a pretty fickle person. Uh, that makes God out to be... Uh, actually, it gets much more difficult than that because what happens when bad things happen and you're actually being really good? 
Or when you're, now nobody ever stops to think, well, I'm being really bad, but things are going well. You just chalk that up as, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. But it affects your relationship and your confidence in relationship uh, to God. It affects our perspectives on life, how we raise our children, what our marriages look like, how we relate to other people, uh, how we live in the world on a day-to-day basis. Now, we all have chinks in the armor. I mean, I, I've really got to go to therapy over driving. Uh, not because I don't know how to drive, but because I do know how to drive. And, uh, and nobody else does. And, um, and it really, you know, the thing that's gotten me recently, this is my therapy right now, you can bill me, is just how awful we are on the roadways. Just, you know, how we, we you know, we, we're not, we don't yield to one another. We don't uh, give people the benefit of the doubt. We're not gracious. Uh, we, uh, we just give nasty looks uh, to one another. And, uh, and I'm convicted uh, by that, that because of who God is uh, in my life and what I read in the Bible, that, uh, that I need to uh, ratchet it down considerably uh, when it comes to uh, how I behave on uh, the roadway. How you view God's sovereignty will affect uh, your understanding of purpose and whether all that is happening is to, to a plan. It, it really does. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be points in your life where you can't make heads or tails out of it. You just have no idea what to do with the situation uh, at hand. And sometimes it doesn't make sense, and it will only make sense when we're able to see him and behold him face to face, and we're look back, looking back over, uh, if you're an Auburn fan, the River Jordan, uh, looking back over the, the other way. Uh, only then, when is it, uh, is it making sense. Uh, but even in the midst of it, I think of uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who was for years the uh, pastor, wonderful pastor theologian. Um, I can't recommend his commentaries on John and the Psalms enough. Great, wonderful. They're, not, they're very accessible. Uh, and uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, was dying of cancer at a fairly uh, young age, I think young. Uh, it, it was too young for him. And um, you could see him, the congregation watched him die. And the way they watched him die is that he would go from being helped into the pulpit to just being wheeled in to the pulpit at the time of the sermon to coming in and just saying a few words. And the last sermon he preached, this is about all he said. He said as he was very near death, he said, some of you have been praying for my healing. I want you to stop doing that and I want you to pray that God would be glorified in my death. Now, there's a man who didn't necessarily understand what was going on around him, but he did understand that there was a purpose and what was happening was according to a plan. And so even in the midst of terrible suffering and very real, real tragedy, uh, he was saying to God be the glory. That's pretty impressive. Again, how uh, we think of God's sovereignty affects how we pray. Um, I use the, my grandfather, who is great. He's dead now, so I can talk about him all I want. Um, great uh, feed for fodder. He had such a funny spiritual spirituality. But one of the things he used to do is when we would go into a parking lot and look for a parking spot, he would say, 
God, give us a parking spot. And every once in a while, as he was beginning to pray, he would say, God, give us, and then a car would pull out. He'd say, never mind, God. And then he'd, <laughs> he'd pull up. Um... Well, on a more serious note, if you don't believe that uh, God really does work all things out for the good uh, of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, uh, that's going to be able to impact uh, how we pray. Right? And I don't mean what we pray, although I do mean that in part, because there are times when you don't know what to pray. You just know that you have to go before the throne of grace and lay it all out. Or just before the throne of grace and weep it all out. Some of the greatest prayers in the Bible are just a couple words. One of my favorites, Peter, walking out on the water with Jesus. He sees the waves. He sees the storm. He starts to go under. Great prayer in the Bible. What does he pray? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. That's a pretty efficient and effective prayer. And what does the Lord do? He reaches down and he pulls him back up. It also affects uh, our view of God's sovereignty, affects our security. This is a big one because we live in maybe the most, and I I do believe original sin is evenly distributed. But I believe that our level of insecurity and who we are is at an all-time high. I mean, just the pressure for not just you to perform, but your spouse to perform, for your kids to perform, uh, to have uh, the right body, uh, to have the right job, to have the right address, to drive the right car, uh, to drive the right, uh, to be in the the right club. Uh, All of those things... Uh, to go to the right church, um, you know, whatever it, it might be. There's just such tremendous pressure that it's to the point that nobody's being honest with one another anymore. Nobody's sitting around with uh, their guy friends or their girlfriends over a cup of uh, coffee. Now, I mean, women, I think, do it better than men. Women, after a bottle of uh, Pinot Grigio, uh, they get, they'll open up. Uh, and, and they but... You know how many, I mean, the willingness to say, I hate my job. I don't want to do this anymore. I've had it up to here with my kids. I, you know, I'm tired of, of the rat race. I, you know, I want to give up the club membership because it's so expensive, and yet that would be a failure in the eyes of some, and so I'm not willing to do that. I'd rather make my life more miserable than to have somebody change their mind about my level of success. Now, that's a huge problem uh, in uh, the world in, in which we live. And I think that the root of it is what do we think of God? Who do we think He is and how do we relate to Him? What is our identity in? And a lot of it has to do with what we think of God's kingship, God's Sovereignty. It also affects our expectations of this world. I gotta hurry. I say it too sometimes. Do you ever get to a place in your life where you say, When is the ball gonna bounce my way? What does that mean? That means Andrew is saying, I deserve a break. I deserve for things to go my way. When in reality, why do I not see things as a gift from God? When the people that went to Rwanda 
they really uh, were able to see this. I saw this there. I've seen, every third world country I've been to, I've seen it. The sense of gratefulness that folks who live there who have so little are more likely to have a mindset of prosperity. And yet we who have so much have a mindset of scarcity. That we think that we need just a little bit more. And I, when I was in Haiti, there was a little girl who was eight years old and she was walking with a five-gallon bucket on her head. She'd walked two miles to the creek and was walking two miles back to her house. And I got home and looked at my kids and said, y'all have no excuse. <laughs> right? We just lack complete uh, perspective. And so what we expect are just everything to go our way. But more importantly, it reveals the extent to which we have come to, the gr- come to grips, as I've been saying, uh, with the God of the Bible. Therefore, what view of the character of God's rule does the Bible present? Now, obviously, this is not a Mickey Mouse topic uh, that can be completely dealt with in the limits of our time. However, there are some aspects of God's sovereignty that I think uh, we can go through uh, very quickly. And I've got some Bible verses that I won't necessarily get into, but I'll cite them so you can go and look. One, God is in complete control. The Bible uh, says that God is a creator with uh, a purpose. Uh, And the the Bible sees God not just as the creator, but as the one who created with plan and purpose and with the power and ability to implement his purposes. So you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Hebrews 11, 3, 1 Peter 1, 18. And if someone wants my notes, you can have them. 18 through 21, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. And we see he's called the ruler of the nations. He's seen as being in control of the activities of nations and even where people live. I mean, he really does direct all of that stuff. And so the whole story uh, of the Bible is God working out his plan of salvation in Jesus, so much so that that's why he has the hearts of the rulers in his hand and he's able to move them as a water course. So, for instance, we have moments uh, in the Bible uh, that are very difficult passages like um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, that's not fair. What do you mean God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? In order that his saving purposes might be realized. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And why did he do that? Read the genealogy in the Gospels so that God's plan of salvation in Jesus might be worked out. So rather than saying, well, that's awful mean of God, do we see the other side of that, which is the great extent to which God is willing to go to even harden the hearts of rulers so that you and I might know Jesus Christ and be saved. He's willing to go to extraordinary lengths. And the clearest evidence the Bible gives of God's control is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus comes as the fulfillment and completion of all that was promised in the Old Testament. The events of his life are frequently linked to the words of the prophets. His arrest, his trial, execution appear to bring the triumph of man and his plans. Doesn't it look that way? Doesn't it look like that God, even the disciples... When Jesus was handed over and they watched him die, they thought, God has lost. God loses. And yet his resurrection is a vindication of all his claims and a declaration of God's sovereignty. Everything has happened according to God's foreknowledge and control. 
and points to and gives notice of a day when God will end all things and require an account of all people. God is involved in His creation. He controls the creative order. Now let me double up on this one, go back to Jesus and move forward with creation. There are some, and I don't know why they do this, but they talk about the Garden of Eden as if, it, if it's the height and end-all, be-all of everything, that what we're trying to get back to is the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, in fact, the Bible starts with a garden and ends with a city. That's right. It ends with a city. So there's development in God's kingdom. Um, uh, but, um, but also there's this thought that God has woken up from his Sunday nap and he's like, what happened while I was sleeping? What do you mean? What? Wait, what? And then all of a sudden he gets on the bull, calls the bullpen and says, Jesus, we're going to need you. Uh, kind of things have gone screwy. We need you to come out and relieve us uh, from what's happened. But the Bible tells us what? From the very foundations of the world, God's plan of sal- salvation in Jesus was there. That nothing catches God by surprise. Now, I can't make sense of it if I were God. I would have said, well, then why did you allow this to happen and this to happen? I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus was the plan all along. And even in the gospel, even we hear the gospel message in Genesis as God graciously gives Adam and Eve clothes uh, as uh, they, uh, they go away. Um, well, one, we see gospel in that because what does he dress them in? Leather. Now, up to this point... Uh, Paging everyone who lives in, uh, in five points. Vegetarian, right? Everybody, you know, they're not, the, the, right? There's no, there, there's no mention of eating animals. But what has to happen in order for them to be clothed? Some, there has to be death. Something has to die in order for them to be covered. Ding, 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 right? And not just that, but the promise that there's going to be one that comes from you whose heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. Pointing to who? Jesus. I mean, that's why if you look at our stained glass window on the, to the left of the communion table, if you're facing it, that's, that's the gospel, right? That's the message as they go out that, that there is coming one uh, who will save us uh, while crushing uh, the servant's head at the cost of his own uh, life. And so we've already uh, talked about God being involved in creation, dealing with Pharaoh, sending the various plagues to set the people of Israel free. Uh, Drought and famine were the experience of the northern kingdom of Israel when God called them to alter their ways and return to him uh, as uh, their Lord. So he's active uh, and involved. And again, Jesus is the ultimate example of God's involvement. This is from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 declares that even our salvation has been totally the result of God's work. By grace, not from yourselves, a gift, not by anything we could do, that is works. We are God's workmanship. And so God is working to a plan. And it's not a haphazard plan. There's nothing haphazard about the events of this world. They are all under God's control. The world will end when God's plan is completed. Our lives will end when God's plan for them is completed. And this is not a world of chance and accident. It's a world of plan, purpose, and order. 
and it's not arbitrary. God's exercise of rule isn't arbitrary or fickle. His rule is good and just, and God doesn't have favorites. All people, irrespective of background, race, wrongdoing, are accepted by Him if they turn to Him. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult pastoral implications that I deal with. What do you say to someone who's lost a child? That tends to be the one that really undoes me. But even, you know, the word that God gives us of that, when David was experiencing great difficulty with his son Absalom, who wanted to gather power for himself, he, um, he said, deal gently with him for my sake. Uh, but even when he lost, uh, remember when he, he impregnated Bathsheba, and when the baby died, that really distraught him, uh, and she would go on to give birth to Solomon. But in the loss of a child, David has some good words, which are these, and you can hear that they're filled with tears. He cannot come to me, but I could go to him. Looking forward to what? A day when he will see his child. Uh, we'll see uh, our loved ones who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll know who they are. Uh, we'll recognize them. And as hard as it is uh, to deal with that, it's not just resignation or fatalism that David or any of us are dealing with. It's actually the Bible saying this situation is rotten because also much of it includes sinful human will. Because God's plan does take into account our own sinfulness. So why do we have cancer? Uh, Why do we have the illnesses and the brokenness uh, that we have in this world? It's because of our own sinfulness that this world is broken down. And God doesn't look at it and say, we shouldn't have blown it. But actually what? He has His rescue plan to save and to restore even creation. So when we die, I'm jumping ahead a little bit a couple weeks, when we die, uh, we're not, um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe we're born with this because my kids even said it, they would ask questions like, is so-and-so an angel now? Well, no, uh, they're not uh, an angel, but there's this idea that we get to heaven and we get our harp and a cloud and we just kind of strum away and, and, and that's it. And that's not it uh, at all. But ultimately, we're moving to a time and a place where God will give us a new heaven and a new earth, meaning actually we will populate a real physical place, not just the spiritual place of heaven, which we're going to talk about what that means and what that is biblically moving forward, uh, but actually a real existence where we will see and know the people that we love who trust in Jesus. And that sinfulness, it will be the curse reversed. And not out of any arbitrary way, but actually because Jesus himself has already reversed the course, the curse. And so a great uh, illustration of this is um, when um, uh, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you remember Aslan the Lion, it's just his presence in the world of Narnia does what? Begins to thaw winter. The world begins to change. The world starts moving in the direction of its redemption, and you begin to catch signs and glimpses of it, and we live in that age now, which is why St. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. We only see glimpses of it, and we try to make sense of it, but we really can't see it as it is. And so in the midst of that, we simply cling to the Lord Jesus and pray that His will be done even 
uh, in suffering. The 39 articles of Anglicanism uh, describe one aspect of the sovereignty of God. And uh, here's, here's the, what y'all were all, I'm going to do this in three minutes, uh, of predestination and election, which Matt brought up in his sermon a couple weeks ago. And I wish that he'd been able to tie it up in a, in a little bit more. I, I wanted him to say something else at the end, but isn't that the case with all preachers? Uh, <clears throat> but it says that it is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Now, if you look at what uh, Matt was preaching on, which was uh, Romans eight twenty six through 39, <clears throat> he talks about our election in Jesus Christ, that God chose us, we didn't chose, choose Him. Uh, we love because He first loved us. Why does He do all that? It's not to say who's in and who's out. In fact, the article goes on to say, you should probably never ever teach or preach on this because it will drive folks to despair. And if you're sitting there thinking, am I one of the elect? The answer is yes. If you're not one of the elect, you, could, you wouldn't give it two thoughts. So if you're wondering if you are, it means you are, right? Otherwise, you, you wouldn't care. But why does why is Paul hammer away at election in Romans as well as elsewhere? He says, because of this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, his, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring even any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So why is the doctrine of election of unspeakable comfort to those of us who believe? Because it's about Jesus. It actually is about assurance. It's about knowing that we, had a God, that we have a God who is mighty to save and who loves us. And there's nothing in this world, if there's nothing we can do If there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, there's nothing that we can do to unsave ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to get out of the grip of God's grace. And so someone has even said so far, went so far to say to me, so you're telling me that even if someone is in persistent sin, and I looked at him and I said, well, aren't you in persistent sin? I mean, I happen to be. It just manifests itself in a different way every single day. Uh, So even that, that doesn't even separate us from the love of God because God loves us in that one way and that's the assurance. The doctrine of election is about that. It's about assurance. It's about security. It's about God's love for us. It's not about us wondering whether or not we're the ones who were, whether or not we're chosen to play on God's dodgeball team. But in fact, it's about God in that it is Him to whom we are to rely and not uh, as ourselves. And so in all of that, let me just close with uh, a little uh, illustration uh, to talk about wrap-up election as it deals with salvation. If, you've, if you're on an ocean liner and you fall off and somebody sees that you've fallen in an ocean and the boat is pulling away and they throw you a life preserver and you take hold of it and they pull you in, 
what is it you're going to say when you get on the deck? What would you say? Thank you. Would you say, did you see how I reached out and grabbed the life preserver that was offered to me? That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Uh, You are going to say, praise God. Praise God. Thank you that you have saved my life. Now, if you want to call reaching out for the life preserver a decision, I guess you can. I mean, I guess you could sit in the water and say, it's all right, I'll wait for another option. I can tread long enough. I can swim the thousand miles. What, I, I suppose, yeah, you, you could do that. Uh, but at the same time, God has held out salvation uh, to you. And it's really a non-decision to reach out uh, and take the life preserver, although you could qualify it uh, as a decision. And so all of this, understanding God's sovereignty and God's kingship, and I really didn't get into necessarily what all that, flesh all that out, but what you believe about God, especially as it concerns His kingship, has a significant impact on every aspect of your life. And so uh, for me, uh, in those times where I wonder, God, where are you? Or if you're involved, uh, I can sit and think about it all I want, uh, but Quite frankly, often I read that passage from Romans 8 and say another great Bible prayer that's very short, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Questions, comments, concerns? Sissies. Disease? Sissies. Sissies, well, you can always, uh, you can always uh, email me. Um, uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about your persistent sin. And, um, and uh, yeah, this is a really tough talk. But, you know, one of the reasons why we're doing these tough questions is this is what everybody's asking, but no one in the church wants to talk about it. And so the church is often answering questions or is providing answers to questions the world isn't asking. And we need to start answering, question, answering questions with answers that, that they're begging to hear. This is more of a comment than a question, Andrew. I read a book one time uh, by a guy named John Frame. It was called Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I always really spoke to me about that is he was talking about in Western culture, we're much more comfortable talking about God's character of love than his character of lordship. Um, that we, Love is easy to talk about. Lordship scares us. But his point, which I thought was really good, is love is more something we need to feel, whereas lordship is something we just intellectually know and believe. Yeah. And there are going to be times in life where we don't feel loved by God. Right. We don't, whether it, we, we, you know, and so you need the truth to fall back on, on something that you don't have to feel but just know yeah. and, in terms of your salvation and everything else, to know that not just that God is love but that God is Lord. Right. Amen. So another, a good book uh, that we have in our bookstore is uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, good Anglican guy, um, lives in Canada now. He's actually been here to the Advent uh, years ago when Frank uh, was first dean uh, P- Jim Packer came and was among us. And it's one of the best-selling Christian books of all time, and I can't recommend it enough. And it, he addresses these issues uh, as well uh, and good questions at the end of each chapter. Well, let's pray. Uh, God, you are our king. And I pray right now for those who struggle with your kingship, uh, who have a hard time trusting you, uh, who may have some misconceptions of you, Uh, who seek uh, to live under your rule and your reign, uh, but are fearful of what it means to let go and to have their identity completely 
in you and to let go of the cares and concerns of this world. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to who Jesus is and that we might see ourselves uh, in him and that we might live under your godly rule. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.